guys. Podcast, let's do this. Podcast. Here we go, guys. Let's do this. <clears throat> this is Silicon Reel, the video podcast dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. I am Brian Rose. I also host London Reel, which is a similar three-person trialogue format. We just had uh, Bruce Perry from the BBC series Tribe on here last week. He was talking about jungles and drinking ayahuasca and all sorts of crazy stuff. We've had uh, Tim Ferriss from the Four Hour Work Week. We had drug smuggler Howard Marks sitting in that chair, Carlos. So you're in good company. Um, but today we're talking about Silicon Reel. My co-host say is my man, Mr. Bryce Keene. G'day, g'day. Founder and director of All Beyond Drive. He's also a member and co-founder of The Three Beards. Indeed. Um, it's a good looking beard. I'm not going to say it's the best beard. It's all the best beard. Um, but it's, three of us. Yeah, you all have equally best beards. Um, if you don't know the three beards, they run the weekly Silicon Drink About, which is usually right near this very office in the, in the Silicon Roundabout. Um, it's free, it's fun, it's casual. You can show up and have a good conversation. So those are always awesome. Mm-hmm. You also have your digital sizzles, which are quarterly. Yep. Don't Pitch Me Bros, which are monthly. And Chew the Fat number three is coming up next month, right? Yes, it is mid-November. With a okay, everyone's saying great things about Chew the Fat. So um, awesome, man. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back. It's uh-huh. good to be back. Cool, dude. Our guest today is Mr. Carlos Eduardo Espinal who is a uh, partner at Seedcamp. Uh, Sexy name. That is a good name. Um, which is, uh, uh, Seedcamp is Europe's leading micro-seed investment and mentoring program, as far as I understand. Um, you started in 2007, and uh, you now include over f- uh, 90, I think, of Europe's most promising startups. I think your standard investment is 50,000 euros or pounds for about 8 to 10% of a company. Is that about right? That's about right. And, but- and you sign about 20 new startups every year? About right, yeah. About right, okay, cool. I do a little bit of research. So uh, before that, you were a venture capitalist, and then before that, you were an engineer, I think working for New York Stock Exchange, Euronext. That's right, yeah. It's quite a history. Welcome to Silicon Real. Thanks for being here, Carlos. Thank you, thank you. Awesome, man. You know, I'm curious if you guys are familiar with the term OG. Have you, have you heard of this? It's a term in the hood. If you, stands, put, a, if you put an M in it, I'm... Uh, M-O-G? O-M-G. O-M-G. No, no that's no. not good. OG is a term in the hood for original gangster. It's like a term of respect shown to like the guys back in the day. Yeah. You know, the gangbangers that made it all happen. And, you know, I thought of that when I thought of Sea Camp. These guys have been here since, since 07. You know, I mean, that's a long time, you know. That's back in the day when the roundabout probably had, you know, tumbleweeds and gunfights and stuff. And so I, I wanted to ask, you know, Carlos. Is that the first time you've been referred to as original gangster, Carlos? I'm Latin American, called a gangster. It's got other repercussions. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. It could be some lawsuits. Here. I love that. It could I love be some that. lawsuits. But, you know, we've, 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 we hear, you know, incubation and acceleration. We've had lots of people through here, but we haven't had a lot of people that have been doing this for six years. So I was wondering if you could tell us, you know, from what you've seen over the last six years, what's the state of the union when it comes to seed investing in London? How has it changed and, and what's going on right now? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question, the evolution of, of all of this. Um, and there's actually two evolutions if, if you want to like talk about them. There's one is kind of the overall ecosystem. Another one is of stuff like what Seed Camp is, right? Because right. people sometimes throw this term accelerator or incubator and they kind of use them interchangeably, but they're actually not the same thing. And the incubator wave had its roots, you know, in the late 90s. And that's a whole different thing we can talk about if you want. Yes, I would like to do that because we do lump them together all the time. And I don't think, especially newbies like myself, we don't know the exact differences. But then, but then sort of the, your original question was like sort of in 2007 was, was things like, and you know, in, if you look back um, at the cost of starting a startup back in, let's say, uh, early early 2000s, you know, it was it was really high, right? You had to buy your own infrastructure, your own hardware. You had a huge amount of sort of build before you can even test it, put it out there. 
And you could argue that that economy of scale of the cloud services coming online late 2007 and 2006, you really started having the context in which you could have these startups start, test things out, see if there's a customer base, and then scale it if there is one. And on that basis, you started having a whole bunch of startups popping up that just didn't have the capital to make it happen. And that's kind of the, where SeedCamp was born. So here, there was a lot of, um, obviously there, was, there were investors, and they were looking for deals, and there were deals to be had, but they tended to gravitate towards the sort of the more established kind of company that already had some level of traction, that already had some level of, of, of monetization, there was a clear business plan and a business strategy. There wasn't that much of like, I have an awesome idea, I can bang it out, put it together, and test out whether or not customers really want it, and, and then look for a certain amount of money just to get me to that next phase. That didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, in 2007, um, Reshma and Saul um, had this sort of idea of, well, let's, let's bring together all the investors from the community and provide that, that support in the way of a seed camp. Uh, and it was a one-off event a year at that time. It was just designed to bring everybody into the room. So like the original one had pretty much the entire ecosystem show up. And it was around basically how do we support these young guys that want to have some cash to like test it out, see how it goes. And um, it's amazing to see kind of how those companies are different from the ones that are today. You know, they were really the pioneers because they were testing things out very lean before lean was cool. And they were (laughs) testing these things out with very low cash and getting it to the market. And and sometimes before their time, if you look at one of our companies that we sold recently, it was called RentMine Online. We sold it to RealPage. it was collaborative consumption before collaborative consumption was cool. You know, the Airbnb made that cool. But it was like stuff that didn't exist, but we enabled it to happen. So it, it, I wouldn't say it was like the wild, wild west. It's just the cost basis globally to build a startup on, on the cheap or cheap-ish was just not possible technologically until that time started coming around. And then from that point onwards, SeedCamp was, whereas in the U.S. You, you had YC and maybe a few other organizations that were doing this in every state, maybe, to some extent, we were the only ones in Europe, which obviously is, is indicative of maybe the, the, the state of things in those days. And then, yeah, then we helped scale that. Then, of course, SeedCamp has evolved over the years, and we've had, you know, we've gone from one event a year to 12 events a year to, you know, I think this year we've, we've done probably going to hit 20 or so. Um, and in each one of those, you know, we meet tons of new companies. We meet about, we, we get about 2,000 plus applicants a year, 200 which we'll meet in person, and about 20 or 30 that we'll invest in. So that just kind of gives you a feeling for that evolution, but the origins back in 2007. Okay. And can you just set the record straight for the difference between an incubator and an accelerator? And maybe that definition has changed over time, too. Yeah. So the original idea behind an incubator, like in the late 90s, was like, let's create, it. Let's create a co-working space of sorts, and I'm going to provide you some assets around that. And... The subtlety of to why there was this implosion of incubators back then um, was really clarified for me recently when I was at, um, at the Turing Festival uh, in Scotland and somebody gave, I forget who it was, but basically had studied why the failure, why the failure of, of the startups in incubators. 
And it turned out that it had to do with a psychological issue, which was that you tend to gravitate towards staying within a close-knit group, especially when you're going through a lot of stress. And what was happening was that incubators were creating a, a, a nest where nobody had to leave. And that nest allowed for companies to necessarily expand out of that nest. So they gravitated towards staying in that nest because it was a comfortable environment. You had your friends, you had the water cooler, you'd have conversation. And, and it was a study that he had done of a lot of the cases of, of uh, startups during that period. The accelerator is a slightly different beast in the sense that it is designed to literally get you out get of the out, nest. Right. Okay. And so, yes, there is a period when you are, in effect, incubated, but it's only for a very short period of time. But the intent isn't to keep you there indefinitely. The intent isn't to provide a nest, a warm place for you to stay indefinitely. The point is to get you out, to grow, to scale, to push the limits, to learn everything you need to learn to scale your company, to get you to product market fit and push you out. And so that's kind of what, what we focus on. And there is, there is then probably a fracturing of what the term accelerator means these days because there's a lot of people that call themselves accelerator and then maybe they're more of an incubator and stuff. But that's probably the, the closest you can come to the differentiation between incubator and accelerator. Is there a time limit roughly that makes an accelerator? Is it like, so people that don't know, is it three months? Is it six months? That would make something more of an accelerator than an incubator? Yeah, I, I think mo- if you look at a lot of the cross-section of accelerator programs, for some odd reason, three months seems to be that happy number. Okay. Um, Which isn't a lot of time. It isn't, no. Um, it is enough to like sort of know what you need to know and maybe do a few potential key hires before you go and venture out on your own. Okay. Um, our program structure a little differently than that, but you know the, the, the dynamics of it tend to reflect that, which is there is a substantial amount of growth that happens beyond month three, and usually it involves one of them is expansion outside of the, the environment that we provide. You know, you mentioned the implosion, the great incubator implosion. I wasn't familiar with this. Was there a certain kind of time frame as far as in London where we saw kind of that market implode? You know what? I wish I could give you the names. Um, and I should have maybe come with a list if I had known uh, that I was going to go through it with you. But, um, yeah, there was probably a few, uh, a few names that you might have heard of. And, um, what kind just, of time period? Like 09 or 10 or like 05? Or? No, like the late 90s, early okay. 2000s. You know, there was – I remember – trying to remember the names right now maybe it'll come to me later but it was like a few sort of co-working slash incubator spaces that just didn't nothing really notable came out of them and they just seemed to go away okay so um, when you created Camp, you were well aware of that phenomenon yeah i mean it's it's something that it w- the thing is remember Camp didn't start on the basis of this is an accelerator it wasn't like you know sometimes people in in, in hindsight will attribute a certain thing to the origins but Seedcamp started as a way to provide capital and advice uh, and validation and sort of mentoring to startups. There was no there was no venue for 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. We had no venue. There was no space. Seedcamp did not have an, a space for the startups. Okay. It was but entirely. You made, but you made investments. We made investments. Okay, but no. We space. gave mentoring. Um, we gave advice, you know, like there was this, the, the concept of the acceleration was there and most of the acceleration happened relatively early in the life of a company, but the real estate wasn't there. So, I mean, that just goes to, to prove the point of the differentiation between like a real estate play versus a sort of know-how play. Like right. what we, what, what I would say highly differentiates an accelerator is this is about the know-how. This is about getting you the right commercial resources, the right mental mindset resources to get you to where you need to get to rather than providing a 
a nice space for you. Mm. And that's a bonus. It's just that's not the objective. Okay. Understood. Understood. There's one thing we always ask everyone that sits down, whether they be a startup guy or a VC guy, it's just like basically to get an idea of your business model. But, you know, we always ask like, what have you done and what are you going to do and, and why, why will Seacamp win in this space? You know, we, like you said, yeah. a lot of people, it's, it's quite trendy these days for even these huge corporations to start their accelerator programs. I mean, we just had, um, Devin Shirin here from Weira Telefonica. We just had Roxanne Varza in here from Microsoft BizSpark. You know, everyone's getting into this, right? But you guys have been out there early. But what, what makes Seacamp different? And, and why do you, why will yeah. you win in this space? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And actually, it's a question that I think is increasingly um, important. But it's also one that seems to gravitate outside of proxies of other industries and how they have evolved. So let's play with the VC industry, right? There was the, the initial funds that sort of existed first, you know, the Sequoias of the world. Um, and then there was all the funds that exist today, which some, some of them are the first in the geography. Some of them are the first in a sector. Like you might say, this fund is well known for financial technologies. You know, like uh, Anthemis, for example, might be known for financial investments in Europe. So when you have that kind of uh, differentiation that starts occurring in any kind of evolving ecosystem, the question is, where, do you, where is that you plan on being? in that ecosystem? What is the role that you intend on having? And so Seedcamp has always been about finding the best founders and backing the best founders. It will always be about finding the best founders and backing the best founders. Does that mean that sometimes we'll invest in a, in a healthcare company or a financial services company? Yeah, probably, right? My future is to find the best founders and back the best founders and provide them the support to get to where they need to get. That's it. Other programs will start probably... A sort of going from a different angle, which is they specialize in software as a service, or they might specialize in internet things, or might specialize in, in healthcare. And in many ways, like the support that they will be able to offer in, in that will be no different than the way that the VC funds have specialized, right? You have VC funds that specialize in, in certain industrial sectors or in pharma or whatever. And the evolution of the market as a whole will be around founders choosing what they feel like they need the most. In some cases, you want to have um, access to the network that Seedcamp has. You know, the the we have 104 startups now. Like the that provides a valuable alumni base of people that have experience and can help you far more than sometimes uh, sort of um, outside parties can. So if you look at the evolution of that, you as a founder will be like, what well, what do I want? You know, like I might have now the luxury because of all the programs that are out there to pick and choose. And say, well, look, my choices are I either want to go to um, Seed Camp or I want to go to this other program that specializes in the sector that I'm applying to. And maybe in other proxies, universities, right? Every, we, we all know that the universities have a ranking and there's a Harvard and there's a Stanford and there's a you know, Yale, whatever. And, and those schools, people will apply to that or they'll apply to, let's say, the, the best engineering school for mechanical engineering. And mm -hmm. you know, whichever one they'll get into based upon what they need, they'll go to that. So that's kind of how I see us, the whole ecosystem evolving. But in terms of us, definitely pushing for promoting and helping and finding and supporting the best founders. Okay. You know, Bryce, you've been in this space a lot longer than I have. Yep. When, when, when you hear the word seed camp, like what are the things that you think of right away, you know, that differentiates them from, from the rest of the crew? So for, for me, it's always been about... And, I don't know, this might not be true, but the, the word on the street, what the kids are saying. That's what I want to hear, What man. the kids are saying. Take a step back. Are you a kid anymore? Not really. Not with this beard. Um, 
I scare kids with this beard. That's what I do. Uh, what the is is seed camp is always kind of, I think, is always quite associated with um, being the first of this, um, the first people to be around invest in what I kind of call the new wave of startup culture in London. So after the original uh, dot com crash and the original ideas went out. It wasn't until around 2007, 2006, 2007, that was about when what we are now here talking about began to really emerge. And okay. that was when those, some of those bigger companies, the companies are still around today, that, you know, the Huddles and, and the Mine Canyons, you know, Moo, those sorts of companies started to emerge. And um, C-Camp was always, uh, was the original program, I suppose, before anyone was willing to do that early stage investment piece. Um, I was always curious, actually. One, I never never asked this, but Reshma, who's the founder of Seacamp, um, so Seacamp started by Reshma and Saul Klein, who's from Index Ventures. Right. And I'm sure we'll have Saul in here at, at some point soon. We'll, we'll have to organise that. But um, how did they meet, and where did the idea come from? Now, Saul's, Saul's Index obviously is a VC, and he does a lot of he obviously does a lot of early stage seed investments um, as a VC. And I was always curious about how they met, yeah, and the and, and where that the idea came from, because he's he's got. A, a fairly um, hefty black book, it might be fair to say. Um, so I, I suspect he pulled in a lot of what was happening in that ecosystem in the beginning to, to do Seedcamp. Yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, if you look at the evolution of any industry's sort of um, peer groups, uh, Rashman and I are in the same peer group, meaning we were both kind of in our same stage of our careers. Um, and... Reshma was working at 3i and I was working at Dowdy Hansen. And, um, and Reshma had a conversation with Saul uh, in, in sort of in the context of, of when she was at 3i around how to help this. So it was, a, it was an idea that Saul had in a conversation with, with Reshma. And, and basically the two of them worked together to, to organize that. Obviously, um, whenever you have two or three different people, different age groups and different sort of cohort of friends, you, you can organize across that. So I was involved early on as a mentor because obviously being a friend with Reshma and, you know, she knew me and obviously, uh, you, you know, Sitar Telly and like, you know, that's yep. kind of our vintage if you want to think of it. But we all knew each other and obviously we all wanted to support the initiative. And obviously Saul had a lot of his peers and cohorts in the same sort of initiative and trying to bring that together. So that's kind of how the two of them collaborated and then brought the whole ecosystem together. Which is really interesting, actually, because, yeah, it, was, it is one of those ones that um, a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of the sort of no, what we would now sort of refer to as the notable founders have, have been involved in some way, either as companies or as mentors in the program. Um, it does have that um, pedigree, I think is the right word, um, because, it, because it, was, it was the first thing, and it was the first thing where they asked, they said, we need the community to get involved in this initiative, it's not just about us investing in companies, it's about all of you guys giving something back, which was, at the time, I think there wasn't really anyone else doing it at the time, am I right? No, no, there wasn't anything like that. No. So like I said, OG, basically. OG. OG, Bridget Banks. Well, I will have Saul on at some point. It's definitely an invite out to him. Um, You know, we have a section of the show where it's like, we usually hit some devil's advocate questions, so I'm going to hit you with a real question. (laughs) When can incubation hurt a company? I mean, have you guys ever, have you ever looked back at your history and you're like, yeah, we really screwed that up? As in like, it would have been better? Acceleration. Accelerator, sorry, accelerator. (laughs) As if it would have been better if they would have missed us or would have been better if they did something else. Uh, I'm just curious if you've seen that. Yeah, look, uh, having worked with 104 companies, 
there's a lot of things you see. And one of the things that, that I've seen, and you know, it hasn't happened very often, but is sometimes you can accelerate something that isn't quite there. Um, sometimes there is this drive when, you, when you're in a program that you just want to perform, you want to perform. And you might go down a, a particular path as fast as you can um, without taking a step back. Now, we have learned from those experiences. So a lot of what the seed camp program is today is already, it, it sort of has a certain set of checks and balances so that nobody finds themselves. But in, in a few instances earlier on in sort of the seed camp's uh, learning process, because in a way we're a startup as well and we're iterating and learning from our customers and the founders are our customers and they tell us, hey, look, you know, going down this path of like, building out my, uh, you know, in this case, it was that they were really pushing hard on getting adoption from a specific user group, but they had a high cost or a cost of acquisition for that user group. They were going down that path in hopes to get traction, but frankly, they hadn't thought through the entire process of whether it was a scalable cost of acquisition process. And so we've now sort of amended how it is that we introduce certain topics so that this, the teams have a feeling for, actually, wait a second, is this a scalable process mm. that I can test out because you, obviously you're not going to go and build it uh, just monolithically before you've, you've had any kind of validation. But at the same time, not running towards a wall and hitting it and then finding yourself out of cash and being like, wait a second, what happened there? You know, yes, I received all this great advice from all these people, but I implemented it on something that I had yet to, to really test out and validate. And a lot of this stuff, like you, you look at the evolution of the ecosystem over the last six, seven years, there's a lot of know-how that's been put into it in the last three um, just from a lot of people uh, taking that learnings from the first three and then sort of quantifying it, putting a framework around it, uh, writing books on it and stuff like that. And that's also helped quite a bit. Um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely moments like that where you're like, well, it's hard to accelerate something that isn't quite there yet. Right. I was looking at, uh, looking through your blog and it seems like you really fine tune this isn't like you, it seems like you really want to get the, the company to think about like exactly how they're providing value to the customer. Because like, if you can't provide that, then you can't quantify that and scale that as opposed to someone coming in that's like, I'm going to make a ton of money or we're going to do what those guys are doing, but better. It seems like the more you get down to like the spirit of what you're building, the more success rate you have. Is, is that right? Or is it not that yeah. simple? <laughs> no, I mean, obviously, look, it, it, it's never simple, right? There's always tons of things that throw off. Like, it could be, you could be going down really well, then all of a sudden your developer quits. I mean, there's all sorts of things that happen. It's always a very fluid situation. But if you don't have clear in your mind who your customer is, and therefore what it is that you're building and how you're communicating to that customer, uh, what it is that you've built, then clearly you're, you're going to go sideways. Um, as an example... Um, I think early on, sometimes startups get traction from two or three different types of customer segments. And they might be, uh, confu not confused, not the right word, but you, you're, you're uh, tempted. You're tempted to go after two or three different things because you're hedging your bets, right? But if you look at most things that deliver value, it's like you kind of have to put a certain level of, of momentum behind the one that you truly believe because otherwise you're wasting resources on things that might not necessarily go anywhere. And so... You know, we, I remember one case where companies were, yeah, they were doing that. They were kind of going through two or three different things all at the same time and inefficiently so versus sort of going after one group of customers that they really, truly understand that were really passionate about what they were doing and that you could really build something for that user group rather than trying to be everything for everyone. Right. 
put all your eggs in one basket. That's what you guys want them to do, right? Basically, you have to be something for someone. You know, like, I mean, that's putting eggs on baskets, I guess, one way of looking at it. But it basically have to be something for someone versus everything for everyone. You just can't do that with limited resources. Okay. Bryce, you've had experience seeing, you know, companies accelerated and incubated over the years. I mean, what, what, you know, what question do you have as far as the process or, or, or what goes on in there? <clears throat> Actually, I was thinking about like the 50,000 pounds or euros. If you had to go back and do all the accounting on like where that money went for each company, I mean, if you had to roughly break it down by thirds or something, I'm curious what it goes to. You know, because it's yeah. not to space or salaries or everything. I've wondered about this because, like, you think about, like, say, in London, you know, and most of these companies average teams of maybe two to four, average being three, I would say, mm-hmm. usually. On the sort of when you go into the accelerator program, usually three or four. It's like, that's not going to that's not going to go very far like that that you know that's not a lot of money it's like one person's yeah. salary so where does it what does yeah. it go usually yeah. i mean so i'll i'll answer that question um but i'll comment on something you said earlier um which is around sort of the, the blog pieces that i've written yeah. each blog piece that i've written has been a function of certain stories or certain things that have happened mm-hmm. and that i've witnessed and therefore these things are designed these blog posts are designed to avoid those things in the future um Mistakes cost money. So therefore, f- making that money go further involves you making less mistakes. And then there's certain kinds of mistakes that are to- totally normal as part of the company's evolution, right? Is this customer segment interested? This is not. Is this marketing channel appropriate or is this one? You know, all those things are kind of normal. What's not normal is did you have to pay a ridiculously high legal fee because you screwed up the way that you set up your company? Like those, that's why some, some of the blog posts I've written have been around that. So assume for a second that you get everything in terms of uh, company formation, founder agreements, and all that kind of stuff set up right, yeah. then all you're doing is focusing money on building out a team or maintaining a team until you can get your next round of financing. So the, the 50,000 euros um, is really designed mostly in getting that market traction, that product market fit required to go and raise an additional round of capital. It's not designed to hold you off for like another year or so. Um, Obviously, if you're just one guy, it goes further than if you're four guys. But increasingly, um, founders are telling us that it's not really about the money as much as it is about the, the mentoring and the advice and the network. Mm-hmm. So the money definitely is a factor for, for, for some. 50,000 euros definitely can help from, for several companies that, that you know, maybe it's a young founding team and they need to move to London and they need to like do, do a lot of um, sort of setup costs. But... We do provide them with some space at, at, uh, at our offices. We also have a 150,000 euro founders pack, which we offer to companies. So that reduces their cash burn as well. That includes stuff like accounting services, legal services, hosting services. So the net net effect is you're basically using 50,000 for living expenses. Really? Okay. So, so that goes to salaries really so and living. The, the program Food. itself is designed to try to reduce the m- amount of costs and then provide you with services that further reduce your operational costs and then you're left with yeah food lodging so it doesn't go into customer acquisition or it doesn't go into like a developer or coding or marketing or any of that stuff it could it could some of it could right i mean it's up to them how they choose to use it um but the the objective is that hopefully with a lot of the um uh, packages that we have within our founders pack that a lot of that could be offset okay. by that so the founders pack is an additional hundred fifty thousand dollars of value you give exactly. them exactly through agreements you have with other service companies. That's, that's right, yeah. Okay, so it's more than just the 50. Yeah. Because that seems like it would go quick. Yeah. That's Yeah, that's interesting. Is that... 
I didn't know that actually that you had the extra packages. Was yeah. that widely known? That's, that's yeah, it's on our website. I actually, I think we also have a few listings of the of the people that provide stuff. I mean, you know, we have some some great partners um, that provide us. You know, like I give you an example, like Rackspace. You know, like hosting. Oh, yeah. You know, that that kind of stuff where you'll, you know, Amazon. You know, where you like you're gonna have to abuse that. You're gonna have to pay some some Amazon web credits at some point. So it's great if you get you know, sponsorship there. So it's okay. it's great for the companies not to have to to use that money to test out, for example, others or other forms of customer acquisition rather than worrying about necessarily covering certain sort of fundamental costs of operation. Yeah. Okay. I'm curious if you could just walk me through like two scenarios. Like if a company, say, just signed with you and they're, you're going to accelerate them for the next three months, like what would be the most ideal way to part company and what would be like the worst way to part company? Like what's like the dream scenario and then like what's the worst thing that happens? As in like you have to call the police to get them out of your, at your space or what are those two extremes? Because yeah. like, I don't know They these show up things. at your house in the middle of the night, yeah. you know, tucking you into bed. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the best one is the easy one, right? Like um, we've had some companies that, are doing amazingly well and then they get you know backed by a seed investor or angel or vc within a month or two months and then you know they'll go and they'll scale their team whether it's in a different office here in the roundabout or if it's in the u.s that's awesome right that's like okay that's that's what you're looking for yeah and then the worst really actually um there isn't really there hasn't been a case like that i mean it's funny because uh some of the guys that do come back and like kind of hang out and they're usually, I mean, you, you like everybody, so it's not like you, you mind too much. But at the same time, most of the time, the companies do evolve out of it. So there's never, there's never, I can't think of a single case where I've had to say, hey, guys, come on, your time's up. Please get out. I mean, mind you that we only started having physical space, as I mentioned earlier, since 2010. So a lot of the older companies already had their space anyway. So there hasn't been that kind of situation. Now, maybe... A darker side or maybe kind of the sort of subset of your question was, well, what happens if a company isn't doing well? Well, I mean, there are companies that have, you know, obviously shut down or that they, they couldn't hit uh, a product market fit and then they just they just close shop. And then that's, you know, we'll have a, a postmortem and, you know, they'll share their thoughts and learnings with the other seed camp teams. But it is what it is. And nine times out of 10, they'll start another startup and they, they're just as adamant about getting involved again. So, mm. you know, um, so you're very clear with them. You're like, here's 50 grand. Here's three months. That's it. You can't come back for another 50. You can't not, come back for more the, time. The three months, I think, I think, as I mentioned that number earlier, it's actually, I, I said our program was slightly different. So I'll just give you kind of a feel for how our program's different. Yeah. The three months is something that is kind of a construct from the, the industry. People think that three months is kind of the thing. Um, three months is indicative of like the largest portion of growth. So that's when like a lot of the mentoring, a lot of the advice and all that kind of stuff happens. But it doesn't stop there. It just ha- tends to sort of level off. So we have kind of think about it as like a rolling university. We have for the rest of the lifetime of the startup, we offer them to attend any of our monthly sessions. So the equivalent of what they went through on the first three months, they can continue to attend over the course of the lifetime of their company. There is no stop date. Okay. What ends up happening is that the more mature the company gets, they tend to send like their VP of sales or whatever. So the, the founders may not necessarily go anymore, but they'll, they'll send their employee who would benefit from the specific session. So there is an evolution there. But mm-hmm. the good thing is that sometimes those founders that become more senior come and share their thoughts with the, the, the younger companies. So it becomes an evolution. The next milestone is usually around the six-month mark when we take our companies on the trip of the United States, which I just came back from. So we'll go to New York, we'll go to Boston, we'll go to San Francisco, we'll go to Silicon Valley, we'll meet with 
uh, VCs, with, with corporates, with other startups. And usually at that point, like the startup that our startup that has been in the program for about six months kind of gets what they need to be doing, kind of understands what they need to do. And then they can really take full advantage of the U S trip post U S trip. They tend to kind of already grow into the maturity stage at which point they either continue coming to the sessions that they want to come to, Mm -hmm. um, or they send somebody from their team to go to it. You know, like when we had Eric Reese attend, uh, one of our sessions, pretty much everybody, whether they were a 2007 company or, you know, a 2012, I think it was, a company, just they all came. They wanted to listen to him. So there is no artificial cutoff point. It just happens to be that the most learnings and growth happen within the first three months. But do you physically kick them out of the space at some point? Are you, are you, um, like usually the, the new company, yeah, usually the new company say, hey, guys, I need desk space. Okay. But um, usually they grow out of it before then. Okay. So mm. it's because it, we invest on a quarterly basis. Okay. So basically by the end of the quarter, which is you know, obviously the, the, the companies that were already in there already started having more than three or four employees, five employees. Then the space that we have allocated for them tends to be too small anyway, so they move out on their own. Okay. Gotcha. I think one team. And if you're listening, you know who you are. Get out. Get out. Yeah. Um, but they did what, get out. What's been, what's been some, of your, um, some of your biggest uh, success stories and to come out of the program, uh, company-wise? And what have been, so of your, you mentioned 109 companies? 104. 104. And how many of those are still going of that 104? Yeah, uh, good question. Um, so we have, um, if you really want to get the full breakdown on, on our website, we have our infographic, and it, it's broken down. I don't have it fully memorized, so I'm going to basically give you the rough Just numbers. Hands, hands, hands. But in terms of sort of the, the, the companies that kind of stand out, um, obviously we've, we've had two that, that, that I mentioned I mentioned one of them. Uh, one was Mob Clicks, which we sold to Velti, and one was RealPage, which, sorry, um, RentMine Online, which we sold to RealPage. And I mentioned that RentMine Online was kind of like an early form of collaborative consumption. And the story of Ed Spiegel, who's the founder of it, is actually quite, quite a cool story. He was a, a VC uh, at DFJ and uh, ah. ended up being a, a founder and then having the company basically go to the ground, him having to move in. And with his mom, and then basically having a slight sort of pivot into a different sector, and then it took off. And so, you know, those, those are the kinds of stories where, you know, they obviously it was a successful exit, and it did well for for everyone. But the story there is the kind of story that you know really inspires a lot of a lot of startups. Um, on the flip side, there's companies that um you know are still sort of operational and are, are going and are doing really well. Um, that in terms of when people say, well, you know, what's a success? Well, success is that they're, they're serving a need in the marketplace. I was um, uh, in the tube the other day, and I, there was one company um, which uh, you might have heard of TransferWise. Yeah, they, they were here sat yeah. weeks ago. Sat yeah. okay. in that chair. So I'm, I'm sitting there in the tube uh, at, at, at yeah. Bank Station, and I see, you know, like, Daylight robbery. There's this poster, and it says transferwise. You know, don't get, don't get, be, don't be a victim of daylight robbery or something like that. And I'm thinking, wow, like a seed camp company's advertising on the metro. That's amazing. You know, yeah. it's like, it's it's that much value to the end user that it becomes a mass market thing. Like you can't help not not be proud so, of that and be like amazed by that and that progress, right? Um, another one of them is is Farmeron, which is um, a company that it measures the success by cows in the cloud. It's software as a service for, for farms and effectively it, it allows farmers to track 
performance of their their livestock and you know how how is that you need to sell livestock based upon whether or not they've been vaccinated or not weight etc so it's a very sort of yield man, uh, yield optimization software as a service and you think you know this is the kind of thing that you know seems obvious now but it's a it's it's this kind of thing that was started by somebody in Croatia that we we met when we were at the Slovenia event founder mm-hmm. is a farmer himself and you know, build something that's a need for himself, and then now you know he's he's backed by the likes of five hundred startups, soft tech, you know, uh, index, and and so you're thinking like, wow, this is you know this is amazing. This is really changing a whole industry. Um, and so you know, those those are the kinds of companies where you're proud of, and you know they're going to do well regardless. You know. Okay. There was an article today in the New York Times International Edition called Technology on Thames, and it was talking about the London tech scene. And mm. apparently Mayor Bloomberg recently said that these, there's going to be more competition coming from London than there is from Silicon Valley when it comes to, you know, the alley in New York. But, you know, everyone keeps talking about the big exit. There's talk now of King.com, you know, filing their IPO in the U.S., potential billion dollars. Carlos, do you think we need a big exit in London, or do you think that whole line of thinking is wrong? Especially from the stage you start. I mean, you start these these, these guys early. Yeah. So the, the big exit has two implications. Um, the big exit has one implication, which is the psychological implication, right? We can do it. Like, this is something that has been done. Here's a big one. And obviously, there's been um, big stories that you have in, in, in Europe, you know, Skype, et cetera. And you have some that are teeing up to be that way, you know, SoundCloud, for example. Um, I think that the, psych- the psychological impact of, of a big success can't be undermined. Like that, that is clearly there, but it's entirely there for, for the purposes of inspiring others and being like, hey, this person can do it. Um, then there's a second one, which is a, a cultural shift, right? That makes it acceptable. Like once that success happens, it then has a knock-on effect, which makes it acceptable because all of a sudden everyone's chasing after the stream. And then the third one is the unlocking of capital, right. right? Now, that one only happens when there's enough of those that then there's a volume of that. Now, they happen kind of in that order, and they don't happen overnight. So even if you have one success, there's still a lag period behind when you're going to have the, 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 the mindset change. And then there's a lag further when those that have, whose mindsets have been changed, who then have been successful, mm-hmm. then pump money back into the ecosystem. Right. So there's a knock-on effect there. It can, you can sometimes circumvent that, meaning you can have a, uh, enough money that is surfacing from other sources that then provide the capital for you to have a, a multiplicity of sort of medium exits, and which in turn can yield almost the same outcome. Like you could, in theory, call them two equations. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can either have the same thing by having something big, which has a trickle-down effect, or a series of middle things that pop up and sort of yield an overall lifting of all the boats, so to speak. Each one of those could potentially work fine. Um, I think that uh, having a large exit would be amazing, but I think it would like a lot of the initiatives that you're seeing in the, the UK with SEIS tax relief is enabling for that money to surface up, therefore enabling more startups to, to exist, and therefore probably having a lot of more experience, a lot more experienced founders, and that has a knock-on effect of supporting that ecosystem just as fast as having one dude who does it really well and then has that sort of knock-on effect, which can take, you know, five, six years to develop. But how many years do you think we're, we're talking until we get that PayPal effect, you know, until we get that Facebook effect where people actually invest those profits, you know, into the next startups? Yeah, so that, that's, that's kind of the, if you look at both paths, one, you could potentially take 
um, an engineer around. The, the one where you enable money to be unlocked, which is kind of what the UK is doing right now, enabling all this money to be unlocked from different sources, enable a whole bunch of people to be successful, and then if they're successful, even if it's not a huge success, but it's sufficient success, they're going to reinvest it back into the ecosystem in some way, shape, or form, and then you have an overall lifting of everything, right? The alternative is, and your question was a time one, was how long till like, you have a huge type thing, like yeah. a PayPal type thing. Then you're looking for the gestation period of any one of these massive hits to then have that person redistributed across. And I would say that's like a five, six year period. So this one could be engineered maybe within the scope of one or two, three years. This one could be potentially not engineered, but you just have to wait for it within five years or so. So potentially different outcomes, but numerically they might end up in the same place. Okay. Fair enough. I'm going to go a bit on a personal tip and hit Carlos with a couple of questions. We always ask people that sit here, um, Carlos, if you could make a phone call to the 20-year-old Carlos Eduardo and give that young man some advice, what would you tell him to do differently? Uh, I love this question. Uh, what would I do differently? What was I, what was I doing when I was 20? Um, you know, one thing I really loved when I was 20, but um, being from a Latin American family, was kind of highly discouraged. I really liked design. And um, yeah, design, like, you know, I guess now it's UI and UX. And Why was that discouraged? Well, you know, traditional Latin American family, you're a doctor, lawyer, or, you know, uh, okay. or engineer. You're not, a designer is not really kind of an option. Okay. Um, and so I think when you look at the impact that design has today on just people's understanding of a product, I feel like, you know, within Seedcamp, I'm, I'm really lucky to have other team members who have this as a, as a skill set, and therefore it's useful for the teams to be able to ask different people in the team different opinions. But man, you know, like, I remember visiting a friend of mine who was an industrial designer and being like, this is so awesome. How do you do this? Like, how do you conceive this? How do you design this? And you see the impact that software design and even just UI changes drastically change the way people interact with their software and the yield that that has on conversion and mm. user satisfaction. And I'm like, man, I wish I had done more of that. I wish you had fostered that design more in yourself. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's good. On that Rebel against my family and been like, <laughs> I should have studied more design. <laughs> on that same note, what, um, what's the best advice you've ever received? Um... The best advice I ever received actually was from um, a friend of mine. His name is Walter Urbaniak. And uh, he was one of the guys that worked at uh, Bolt, Baranek, and Newman, which were the guys that created DARPAnet, um, the first sort of internet uh, in the U.S. And he and his colleagues kind of came up with the first protocols and stuff. Um, and one time, I remember, I was stuck in, in, uh, in trying to figure out a problem when we were working together and he uh, basically made me go through every single little step that a TCP packet goes through to get from one computer to the next. And every time I got stuck, he would kind of make me backtrack and figure out like what the probable things were that led it to the next step. So if I could bridge the gap between two steps. And that sort of way of thinking has been probably the, the biggest helpful thing for me in terms of advice. It's not like a little statement like, you know, do what you love or anything like that. It's, it was more of like, a, a, a way of structured thinking that really, really helped in solving a lot of things where you half the time don't even know what the answer is, but provided you can break it down into small chunks. You can almost deal with the chunks themselves rather than feeling completely overwhelmed by the main problem. So like logically go from A to B, from B to C, from C to D, yeah. not make the jump and not make assumptions. Right. Okay. 
that's good advice. We haven't heard yeah. that before. Last one is, you know, for the 20 year old that's listening to this on iTunes or watching us on YouTube, you know, what kind of advice do you give to them? You know, if they want to someday, you know, be funded by Seacamp or want to be part of this, this whole ecosystem, what do you tell them at that age? Yeah. Um, if we look at, if I look at some of the founders that we have, they're very young. Um, they tend to definitely be bold about, they usually, in some cases, self-referencing customers, meaning that there's a pain that they're solving that they have, and therefore they're building something to solve that. Um, but they definitely are not afraid to be self-taught and also to experiment and not necessarily um, feel like they have to go down the pre-described path. And so if I look at the, the founders that sort of stick to my head that are young in, in sort of the Seedcamp family, they're all very much self-taught individuals. Like they've gone out of the structure of the schooling. So don't limit yourself to what you're being given as part of your curriculum at school or whatever. Go and explore all these other things that are out there. And um, also pursue things that you think are actually, that you have a hunch that are actually a pain for you or for your friends or for whatever. Just come up with something test it out, learn about how to supplement it, and you'll probably find, stumble upon something that's meaningful. Good advice. What did I miss, Bryce? Oh, God. Did I miss anything? He's a mysterious man, Carlos. There's just so many mysterious. things. There are so This could be like a two-hour show. There's a lot. We're <laughs> just basically scratching the surface. Uh, uh, one last question then before we go. What's the biggest mistake you see startups making like across the board? I mean, I know it's very general, but you must see it happen all the time, not to mention the companies you don't invest in. If there's something that you see, what is it? I think, okay, there's different kinds of mistakes, right? There's recoverable mistakes and there's mistakes that are unrecoverable. The recoverable ones are like, okay, I spent 100 bucks on AdSense, didn't go anywhere. Okay, well, we only have 100 bucks left. You can sometimes scrape by on another 100, 200, or 300 to fix that kind of mistake. It is a recoverable mistake. The unrecoverable mistakes and the ones that tend to screw things up catastrophically are founder-on-founder type mistakes. For example, um, two people get into an argument. Who's who's the one that makes the final call? Uh, Two founders get into an argument. It sounds like the beginning of some sort of like bar joke, doesn't it? Like two founders get into an argument. But it, it, it really is. It's a, it's a big problem. It's, it's a big problem because sometimes you don't necessarily know what the roles and responsibilities are between a, a group of people, especially like a team of three or four, and what to do about it. Um, fairness in, in terms of equity distribution. That sort of game that can sometimes play out between people when they're whether they want more, they want less, and they feel really kind of stressed about it and whether they're being fairly treated. All that stuff can really break apart a, um, a company. If, if, if you start having games between founders, it can really, really catastrophically fail a company. So, um, for example, one of the things that we prepared as part of trying to resolve that in very, very, very early stage companies before they even come to Seed Camp, we created this document called the Founders Collaboration Agreement. It's available for download for free on the internet. And basically, it's kind of like a, um, it's not a contract in the sense that it's a shareholder's agreement or something that you'd file in company's house. It's like literally an agreement between founders to say, look, guys, if one of us leaves, this is what we're going to leave with. Is that fair for everyone? Great. This is what we all are going to have. Is that fair for everyone? Great. Anything we work on here is going to be assigned to the company so that nobody walks away with it mm. and creates another startup. Are we all all right on that? Okay, we're going to assign all the intellectual property. Are we cool with that? And if you just tackle those two, three, four major issues, you tend to just like park that in your mind 
and then that's it. You don't have to worry about that anymore. But if you don't, what ends up happening is that somebody's like, well, you know, I'm putting more time in you and, you know, you're not doing as much and, you know, you're not doing what you need to do. You need to leave. And then, no, but do I get to keep my 30 or not? And a lot of the most difficult sort of devolutions of, of companies have been around these sort of founders issues. That's good. I always wondered if there was like a, a, a document that you could get everyone to sign. Yeah. Like you said, whether it's legal or not, but it gets everyone in the right mind frame. Yeah. Because like everyone's always playing their own scenario in their head. You know, I'm working more than him or I'm not. And like without communication, people don't know what's going on. And who's to say at the end of the day? And you have no like, you know, ombudsman or you've got no like chairman of the board to say, yeah. stop doing that. So. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. three person, four person teams. It's that's, that sort of stuff will kill you. And you can get that document on, on C-Camp? Yeah, you can just type in Founders Collaboration Agreement. Okay. Um, it's funny because I, uh, you, know, you put it up there and then obviously people are going to be like, well, you know, this document isn't legally binding, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look, guys, it's a conversation starter. If you want to sign it and you want to use it as, as a template for you guys to then go back to, fine. If you want to amend it, go amend it. We've open sourced it. It's Creative Commons. Feel free to download it and edit it as you wish. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a friend who's a lawyer who wants to take a look at it and make some amendments, go ahead. So we just made it available there, but it's, it's, I think it, it's, it's not meant to be like this monolithic thing that you have to follow directly. It's, it is a suggestion that encompasses the major things that I've seen be a problem for the community. That's, good, that's awesome. a good tip for the listeners. Yeah, I like that. Download that file, definitely. Um, Carlos, how do people get in touch with you? Do you have a, a Seed Camp event coming up where people can attend? What's the info? Yeah, no, if, if people want to get in touch with me, I'm uh, at CEE on Twitter. When, uh, when did you get that Twitter handle? When did I get that Twitter like handle? Five yeah. Years ago or something. Yeah, that was one of the first ones, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, CEE. And um, we have Vienna coming up, we have Helsinki coming up. Uh, we have Seed Camp a Week Berlin coming up. So if if you want to come, uh, Helsinki is probably the next one that that uh, you should attend or apply for. Um, and then, yeah, we hope to have some great news coming out of Vienna and and um, Berlin, which are the next two events that are going to be coming up. Are you there? Is it is that happening as part of Pioneers um, Festival? Yes. Cool. So I'll be there. I'll be at, in Vienna at Pioneers Festival. I shall keep my yeah. eyes peeled. Awesome. Well, contact Carlos if you want to get involved in... Uh, in fun with seeds and Bryce what's going on with uh, beards and you next month or so yeah so um, all sorts of bits and bobs we've got some exciting announcements to make very soon which I can't reveal but there are some can't some, break any news here there are some new things coming we're, uh, we're uh, going after ever broader horizons but um, I'm going to be at Pioneers Festival next week in Vienna at the Royal Palace uh, which should be great uh, hearing all about future technology and startup Carlos will be there with Seed Camp or Philip I think from Seed Camp is going to be there there's going to be all sorts of wonderful things going on there including Apparently NASA going to be speaking, which would be quite interesting. Um, and then I am back, and then I'm off again in November. I'll have some more news on that soon. Okay, uh, good. Okay. But they'll, they'll still be weekly drinkabouts Fridays, right? Every Friday. I'll okay. be there this Friday at uh, Silicon Drinkabout. I don't know where we are this week, actually. I should know that. Check the, check the web, definitely. Check the web. It's... Uh, siliconddrinkabout.com forward slash London. Cool. If you enjoyed this show, please uh, tell it, tell your friends and coworkers about it. Share it. If you're uh, listening to us on iTunes, come check our beautiful faces out uh, on uh, YouTube. Um, everyone included today. Um, <laughs> it's uh, episode 18. It's been lots of fun, Bryce. We're going to keep going. we got another four weeks booked. Yep. Uh, it's about the people, as we say. I'm learning. See, I'm getting better, right? You're getting there. You're getting when it started off, when Bryce was here on London Real, I said, what's a mushy monster? That's what I said. We still got to get Michael in. That he's, was five he's months on the agenda. Ago. Yeah, he's on Michael, the agenda. So Michael and Saul have both been called out here today. So hopefully we'll see them soon. Um, gentlemen, thanks for being here. Fantastic discussion. We could talk to you more for like an hour, but we'll, we'll, we'll cut it off here. And um, thanks, guys. It's about the people and uh, best of luck. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Take care. 
potentially failed to do in my situation was really sit down and hash out what is our vision, what are our different roles, kind of what's expected from each person. And I think uh, those are things that can make or break a company or a project. That's good advice. We haven't heard that one before. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, the co-founder stuff is cool. I, I, and you even see it, you know, the Twitter co-founders had in, in early days. And, and a lot of people think or are saying BlackBerry. 